Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. It is the 15th of September when this podcast is first broadcast, and that means it is Battle of Britain Day. It's the day on which a particularly large-scale battle took place between fleets of German fighters and bombers and British interceptors over London in particular. The Luftwaffe launched its largest and most concentrated attack of the Battle of Britain so far against London in the hope of drawing out the RAF, in the hope of teasing out what they thought were those last few fighters and annihilating them. It's that classic German doctrine, either on land or in the air, seek decisive battles, seek battles of annihilation. With the RAF destroyed, then Britain could be brought to its knees, forced to a political compromise, or perhaps invaded before the autumn weather made that impossible. Something like 1,500 aircraft in all took part in the battle, making it one of the largest aerial battles at that point in history. Around 60 German aircraft were destroyed, 20 or so were very badly damaged, and they lost over 100 aircrew killed, captured and wounded. It was simply too high a price to pay for the German Luftwaffe. And a day or two later, Hitler formally postponed his invasion of Britain. And his thoughts were already turning to the East, 1941, and his great showdown with Stalin's Russia. Britain would live to fight another day. Now, to mark this anniversary, I'm going to replay one of the old podcasts way back from the archive. I haven't had this one on for years. It's very special because it's an interview with Tom Neal, a.k.a. Ginger Neal. He won two Distinguished Flying Crosses in the Second World War. He was one of the last of the few. He was an ace who fought in the Battle of Britain, and he became something of a spokesman for the pilots of Fighter Command, the few. I'll be posting pictures of his logbook later on my social media feeds. So check out the History Guy on Instagram and Twitter, and we'll stick up on the History Hit Facebook page as well. His logbook for these days is absolutely extraordinary. Tom fought in the Battle of Britain. He then went to Malta and ended up having, well, actually an interesting little postscript to his Second World War career on D-Day as well. A fascinating human being, a wonderful man who very, very sadly died just a day or two short of his 98th birthday in July 2018. Sorely missed. You can watch my interview from which this podcast is taken at History Hit TV. It's the world's best history channel. You simply go over there, you watch documentaries all about history, made for proper fans of history like you and me, folks. Go to historyhit.tv, sign up now, you get 30 days for free and you can watch Tom Neal taking me around his house, showing me some of his mementos, his logbook and his pictures, and telling me what it was like in that long summer of 1940. Extraordinary thing. So head over to historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, have a listen to the wonderful Tom Neal. Did you always want to be a fighter pilot when you were young? No, no. I was born in 1920. The only son, indeed, the only child of Thomas and Florence Neal, who were born in uh, 1890s, 1991. They died in the 70s, so we were married for, what is it, 60-odd years. Uh, I was the only child, as I say, and we had the most loving, wonderful family in we lived in those days in the north part of Liverpool, the rather fashionable Bootle as it was then, it's less fashionable now, which was full of big ships, the Mauritania, the Aquitania, 
the Titanic, Lusitania, that sort of thing. And they all moved in 1927, I think it was to Southampton, because you couldn't dredge the Mersey to allow people to go ashore from other than lighters going backwards and forwards to the ship. So the White Star Line and the Cunard Line moved all their ships to Southampton. So a lot of the uh, town was lost in terms of business. And uh, I loved the town at Liverpool in those days. And I was fortunately or unfortunately at in Bootle when it was bombed in 1941. In, uh, they had seven nights of terrible bombing when the place was razed to the ground. And uh, I well remember it indeed because we were going out to Malta. We didn't know we were going out to Malta in those days, but to the Middle East. And we were going on board the, the, the Furious, the aircraft carrier Furious. We were going to transfer to the Ark Royal, but what it ends. We didn't know we were going to do that. Because the thing about being in the RAF service, or indeed any British service, you're never told what you're doing. And it's all a great secret. The Germans know exactly what you're going to do, but you're never told. But anyway, that's about Liverpool. I loved Liverpool, Bootle, and then... Uh, uh, but why an aviator? What, what was it about well, flying? Well, just coming to that, uh, the first... Ten years of my life, obviously, we got to 1930, which was Amy Johnson uh, went to Australia uh, in 1930, as I remember. Or perhaps you don't remember, it before your time. But she did it on a, a Gypsy One Moth, six, a Gypsy DA-60. It took her nine days and some hours. She's a wonderful dress. Actually, there was no spring chickens because she was 37 as a school teacher at the time. Old. And I met her many times during the war, and she killed herself, you probably know, or people should own her, uh, on the Thames Estuary in 1940. I well remember it because I was one of the people in horrible weather who spent some time trying to find her because he was in a little two-seater. I can't remember what it is. Anyway. So she went, and uh, I suppose that raised my interesting in, interest in flying. And I was also a choir boy. My uh, parents were quite religious in a sort of a quiet sort of way. They were never pious, but I was at the, lo- was at the local choir, Christ Church Choir, and we were a wonderful choir there. And we used to sit in the choir stalls eating our milk flakes and Mars bars because they'd just come out in the early 30s, tops each. And we used to talk about aeroplanes, about uh, uh, SE5s and Bristol Bulldogs and all sorts of things like that. And I became interested in aviation, so much so that I let my parents know that I wanted to join the Air Force when I was old enough. And Hitler came round in 1932, which you will know, or perhaps you don't know. And uh, the uh, Spanish Civil War happened in 1936 or thereabouts. And I was 12 in 1932. But I remember quite distinctly 
Hitler being voted in as chancellor in Germany and beginning to take an interest in air forces and things like that because Germany wasn't, wasn't allowed an air force in those days. And then I let my parents know that I wanted to join the air force. My mum, my one woman would hear of it because she said to me she'd met a lot, lot of RAF or Royal Flying Corps officers in 1914, 16, 18, and they were all drunks. And they didn't want his son to be a drunk as I went in the Air Force. So I, that was absolutely verboten. I was forget about that. I then wanted to go into the Air Force as a short service commission, which was four years, sometime later, six years. But they wouldn't hear about that because um, what was I going to do when I'd finished in the Air Force with my four-year commission was 22. It was a ridiculous proposal. I then said, well, I wanted to join the Auxiliary Air Force, which was 611 Squadron at Speak, or John Lennon Air Force, as it is now. And uh, I went down to an interview, but uh, they didn't think I was posh enough, I don't think, because I didn't have a car. There's a reason for that. And that was a rule out of order. And I joined the Volunteer Reserve in 1938 when I was 18. Was your mother happy about that or not? No. They, they knew nothing and nothing about aeroplanes. Um, the only uh, relationship with anything to do with the air was my father was in the artillery. He was uh, in the Scottish Regiment before the war. He uh, watched a German crash to his death and managed to uh, purloin his flying boots, which appeared in the top room of our house for many, many years in a tin box. And until I think it was 1941 when my parents' house was bombed in London and my, my father complained that uh, he thought it was the Fritz coming to reclaim his football. <laughs> but he wished he didn't have to knock the house about so much in the so doing. So that's just by the way. So I joined the Volunteer Reserve in Manchester and on my 18th birthday. And uh, I was inducted, or whatever the word is, I think it's in October. And I told, was told that my flying career had begun. And I went down to a place called Barton Airfield, which still exists. It's a little 500-yard patch of grass. And um, we were flying Dick Gypsy 1, whilst the same aircraft that Amy Johnson flew to Australia in 1930. So it was pretty, you know, inauspicious arrival into the Air Force. And eventually we we uh, transferred into Tiger Moths in, uh, after a long time. And having joined in July, uh, the weather was so, so bad. And this is needs bringing up because people just day and age with the Clean Air Act and things like that. They had no idea what Britain was in 1938-39. First of all, 5,000 engines smoking chimneys into the air all over Britain. Um, everybody had no teeth. Do you remember that? You probably don't. Because uh, when people you know, achieve, achieve the age of 21... Their parents bought them a set of false teeth because all their teeth had gone, you know. 
Too many sweets. Absolute whatever it was they were chewing. But nobody had good teeth in those days. All you see on television nowadays is people with beautiful teeth and all somebody else's teeth. But in the 30s, and of course, if you went in the train, of course, you had to go anywhere, everywhere by train. You got in the train and you were ankle deep in fag ends. Everybody smoked. Pipes, cigars, fag ends, everywhere. Britain was filthy, and particularly in the north. And uh, that is one of the recollections of my early child, how Britain was beautiful because there was no minerals in those days. You had to rotate your uh, crops so that f four out of five heap friels in Britain was a pasture, mm. which made all the difference to Britain as it then was. But anyway... <clears throat> The reason I'm telling you these these little stories is that uh, between October 1938 and the summer of 1939, I flew nine hours. No. Uh, because we used to fly every weekend and the weather would be bad. You wouldn't be able, be able to fly for 16 different reasons. And we very rarely got in any flying at all. So by the time we come to the summer of 1939, uh, I'd done about, I was able to go solo, and it took me 16 hours to go solo. And then, of course, the war came. Poland was invaded, and the war started in September. And I remember standing, in the 60 of us, in the VR in uh, Manchester, uh, on a Sunday morning, listening to Mr. Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, uh, saying in sepulchral terms, we are now at war with Germany. And the war started. And everybody, you know, put their fingers in the ears, expecting the bombs to occur. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. You were all young men. How old were you at the outbreak of war? Well, when I joined the Air Force, I was 18. Yeah. And uh, I was 19, uh, 1939, just. Were you, were you excited? No. You weren't no, excited? Well, yes, we were. Uh, but we didn't know quite what we were excited about. We were young people, as you were, in nine, 19. And uh, as you hear in a moment, I'm not going to speak about it. I was, had, had achieved my first interception when I was 19. In Spitfires, or in Hurricane. That was uh, in June, July 1940. But, but in, the, in September 39, you must have felt, well, I, wanted to, exciting, be a, I yeah. wanted to be a fighter pilot, and here I am. I can't yeah, believe indeed. it. Now, this is rather interesting, because uh, when the war started, first of all, our flying training, that period had been absolutely primitive. So we were sent up to Montrose in Scotland, to number eight FTS at Montrose. <clears throat> and Montrose Airfield was just about as old an airfield as you can possibly find, a grass airfield. And we were flying Hawker Hearts, Hawker Furies, Hawker biplanes, you know. And we had six months, wonderful uh, months there. And even then, I'd, I, I then had done 156 hours total. 
But I wasn't in the way anyway well trained. I wasn't trained at all. I could just fly an aircraft, and that was that. I forgot what I was uh, talking. The, the excitement of I, I yes, said, did you oh, want? Yes. You always wanted oh, to be. An I was delighted to be in the Air Force, and uh, always a great thrill. I always wanted to be in the Air Force. I wanted the uniform. I wanted to look smart. I wanted to look like the RFC officer, like you know, in the RF, like Ball and McCudden and McManic and all these exciting people. Uh, oh, it was a wonderfully exciting time. We didn't know why we were exciting, being uh, excited, but it was a great thrill, great thrill. Did, were you aware of the big strategic? Do you think, oh, those no. Germans, they're an no. absolute menace, or did no. you care about it? No, no. No, the, the, I'm interested in, you should ask that, because in 1937, I uh, went with, we had a reciprocal arrangement with a school in Germany, and I went to Germany in 1937, I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful place, because you went by uh, boat to Ostend from Dover, and you went through a bit of France, and and uh, Belgium, which, which I thought was terribly crummy. And suddenly you, you got to Germany at Aachen, and you went into Aachen, and the place was transformed. Everybody looked smart with long gray uh, coats, and the girls looked absolutely delightful in their blouses and skirts and things. It was a wonderful thing. It was, everything looked like a clean, clean, and there were soldiers everywhere. All the officers, you know, with all with their tall hats and dirks by the side, they're swing, swinging along the pavement. All they're all very courteous, getting on the on the off the pavement to let you pass. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. And of course, at the time of the year was such the the uh, grapes were in full flood, and the scenery and, and, and everything was lovely about it. And we'd heard about Hitler, and we heard about book, uh, books being burned in the streets, but we didn't see any of that. And I met a delightful chap called Karl Heitz Moore, very ordinary chap, but he was roughly the same school as me, and he could speak English. I couldn't speak a word of German. And we went up and down the Rhine and the Rhine sealers, and I met a delightful girl who was a student at Heidelberg. And it was a great, great time. We went down to from Wiesbaden to Kplenz, or Kplenz to Wiesbaden, round and about the, the Rhine and And it, it made a wonderful, wonderful impression to me. And there were aircraft flying in the sky. Uh, I think like the Junkers 86s and things, and fighters. It was wonderful, wonderful. I even joined the Hitler Youth, and I ran with them, and you know, uh, I upheld them the, the the honor of England. But I won in a equivalent of two hundred yards or something like that. But it was a wonderful time, and I came back uh, uh, back to England and kept in touch with my friends, male and female, for a time until the war intervened. We stopped writing to each other. But I wrote some stories about those, and I wondered how they fared, you know, during the war, where they killed. And I wrote some wonderful stories about what, how I imagined them to be, how fair. The young lady was, became a doctor. And Karl Heinz Moore, 
I put down as going to the SS. Um, and anyway, you'll, if you buy the book, <laughs> 20 quid, you, you, you'll learn all about it. And so, so when war broke out, you and your mates were training up in Montrose. You didn't hate the Germans. You no, weren't, you, weren't you, no, you just... No, no in fact, uh, I first fought, so my first German, believe it or not, off Montrose in, uh, when I was flying training. We were doing some instrument flying out to sea, which we're not supposed to do. And I was about eight or ten miles out to sea, and I flew out out of the middle of, the middle of a to, to Lotus, an aeroplane alongside me, which happened to be a Heinkel 111. I didn't recognize it as such, but my instructor did, and tore the aeroplane out of my hands and dived for safety to the ground. <coughs> the aeroplane was later shot down by people at Spitfires from Montrose, but that was the first aircraft. What was it like seeing the Germans for the first time in the air? Enormous of interest. Interest. We're much interested. And in fact, when we first came across the first fighters, I was much, much more interested in the colours on the fighters and the fact that they were very close or very distant or whatever it is. It was a wonderfully... Uh, interesting period it wasn't i wasn't particularly concerned about being shot down i ought to have been of course but uh, no it was a, w a wonderful period of interest when you meet the enemy for the first time and, and you know you you see the airplanes you read about in books and so on. it's a wonderful period when you were when you were training did you all say to each other oh gosh i hope we don't miss the war i hope it's not no. over no it's a, the selection of those who were going under fighters, and they weren't called fighters. They were single-engine aircraft you were going on to, or you had twin-engine aircraft. <clears throat> and the first day of our arrival at Montrose, we were lined up on the airfield, and we were going to be inspected by the chief flying instructor. And he was a very tall chap called Loudon, and he wore a big black moustache. Moustaches were very fashionable in those days, a big black moustache. And he came down with his minions, people writing in books and things, and to inspect us in the whole line. Now, normally you're lined up according, taller the shortest on the right, smallest on the left. But on this occasion, you were lined up according to your name. So Neil, being Andrew, starting from Andrew, I was halfway down, three quarters of the way down the line. So we were lined up all uh, in a single line, and the chief flight instructor arrived, and he got the chap uh, the beginning, and his name was Abel or something, I can't remember what. And he said, right, now uh, tell me, <clears throat> what do you want to do on a single engine or twin engine? And Abel said, oh, I want to go on the fighters, sir. I, I'm pretty good. I, I see. Now, why do you want to go into fighters? Well, because I'm this, that, and the other. And he came on a string of replies why he particularly wanted to go into fighters. And then the chief flying instructor looked at him and said, bombers, and that walked down. And, and he went down the list, and there were about 20 people before me at N. And I was listening to all the little stories being related as to why people wanted <laughs> fighters or bomb. And next door to me was a little tiny chap, a, a jockey, or at least a, a boxer, knee-high to a duck. 
and I was six feet three, and he was next door to me. <laughs> and they came down the list, and uh, it became obvious to me, or to, and other people too, that of the 38 people on the course, 15 were going on to fighters, and the rest were going on to bombers, whether they liked it or not. But the, the, the problem arose of what a little argument where, where you are supposed to provide in order to seal the, the lot, so to speak. So he came down to me, and uh, this mountain of a chap with a black moustache stood and just said, now why do you want to go to fighters? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm good at aerobatics. And I remember saying, well, I'm the sort of chap would be good. Why would you be good on the fighters? So I made my reply, and then I stood there on tender hooks, waiting for a reply. And the chief flag said, looked me straight in the eye and said, fighters. And I could have screamed with laughter. I'd, had there been bombers, I'd have gone straight down to Montrose Airfield to station and stood in front of a train. It really was. I was it made so much to me. But then, and I was considering my good luck, the chap next door to me was being posed the same questions. And Jock, who's a little Scots fellow, he was asked whether he wanted to go and fight us or bombers. And he said, I want to go and fight us, sir. I hear, why are you? Well, I'm not prepared, he said. To bomb defenseless women and children. It's just no my style. And there was a terrible silence. And the CFI, he from six feet three, bent down, looked him through with his nose, was touching him. And said, you will bomb defenseless women and children. I like it, you see. <laughs> Bombers. So he got bombed wrong. <clears throat> Jock Nickel, his name was. Poor boy, he put on to Hampton and was killed almost immediately after he left FCA. But that was the, the, the joy of my life was I was put on to fight. Uh, but but you were, keen to, were you keen to get into the action or do you think the war might no, finish? No, I just wanted to fly whatever it was. We'd never seen a Spitfire or a Hurricane or anything like that. We were on biplanes. But it was the thing to do. It was the thing I wanted to do more than anything else. When did you first see... A monoplane. When did you first see a hurricane? Oh, well, they came out in 1936, of course. No, but sorry, when did you first well, fly one? Well, there were some Spitfires at Montrose that they were the offshoot of 603 or 602 Squadron, which was a count, uh, uh, city of Glasgow, city of Edinburgh, auxiliary squadron. So they had a detachment of three or four. So we'd... we'd touched the sides of them and looked inside the cockpit, you know. But they were magic pieces of equipment. And uh, you and you touched them and sort of with a handkerchief and that sort of thing. Um, but but that, that was as close as we got uh, to, to the modern aircraft. When did you sit in one for the first time and, and take it up the runway flying? Ah, good question. In May 1940 itself. And I'll come to that bit in a minute. <laughs> so I left Montrose with 158 hours, as I say, and because I was, I'd been commissioned in the meantime. And I went down and everything was in first class now, except that other than third class. And uh, I uh, 
was posted, first of all, on the, the 10th of May, 1940. I, on leave, was sent home in my brand new uniform, and I'd been home a day. And I was posted to 249 Squadron in Church Fenton in, in Yorkshire. And I had no idea where Church Fenton was. I had, I, and then he said, posted to 249 in brackets H Squadron, uh, with effect from whatever it was, 10th or 14th of May 1940. And I had no idea what H stood for, but I assumed it was Hurricane. I didn't mind. Hurricanes were not as any other aircraft. But I had to, didn't know where Church Fenton was. I had to take my school atlas to try and find out where it was. I went by train, and I got to Church Fenton, and nobody had ever heard of me. And I got into the officer's mess uh, and sat down, and I spoke to a pilot officer next to me, and I said, uh, are you in 2491? What? He said. I said, are you in? I've never heard of it. He said, it must be a new one for me. So I sat there on Tandon Hedgehogs wondering whether or not I'd come to the wrong place. So eventually a chap came in. He was about 40 or so, and he spied me in a corner and came and said, are you 249? You're the first chap to arrive, he said. And that was my introduction. We have no airplanes, no people. No. You're, you're brand new, brand new. And then... Uh, we were sent to Leckenfield, which is up the road from Church Fenton, which is roughly all, you know, Kingston Pongle, Beverly. And uh, instead of hurricanes arriving, Spitfires arrived. Uh, 18 Spitfires arrived. And nobody's ever been near a Spitfire. And nobody knew anything about them. So uh, I, being the first one, I, I was entitled to a little seniority because the first one in the squadron, you see. I didn't know who my friends were or who other people were, who the commanding officer was, and then think about them. And a chap called Nicholson arrived, and he's a flight lieutenant, tall chap, uh, bushy hair, he never combed, things like that, and nice, nice sort of chap. And he, was, he took me to see my first Spitfire, which we had in the hangar. And we had it on trestles. And he said, now I want you to get into the cockpit and I'll tell you where all the tits and bits are. And they need to work them and see how they work. I'll explain what was going on. Raise the wheels, lower the wheels, flaps, etc., etc. And he said, I'll put a blindfold around your eyes and you'll do that for half a day. And when you think you're au fait with more or less what's going on, in the cockpit, you can go and fly it, which is what happened. And I stood on the airfield at Leckenfield, it was an all-grass airfield with lots and lots of damp spots. Nicholson's had, and he had 42 things I didn't have to do about it. I wasn't to do this, I wasn't to do that. All, a whole catalogue of things which were verboten. But uh, now, I've told you all that, now go ahead and fly it. And I got into this aeroplane, flew to the other, to taxi to the other end of the airfield, <coughs> opened the throttle, and the thing took off like, like, a, like a, a, an eel. 
and I was into the air before you could say knife. I didn't attempt to close the hood because I didn't want to be claustrophobically enclosed in the hood, climbed up, waiting for the engine to stop, which it didn't. Then I was up at 8,000 feet, doing this, doing that, and suddenly, I'd never been before above 150 miles an hour. I was doing 400, 400. It was a new experience, and came in, landed with a couple of bumps, and my first thing, and then the important thing is not to let the engine boil because it, because uh, the radiator was on one side of the aircraft and outside the, co the cover of the, or, uh, the asker in front. And it boiled before you can say knife, but you weren't allowed to let it boil or the steam would come up the front end, et cetera, et cetera. So I got back and, uh, not to do the brakes, otherwise it'll tip on the nose. There must have all sorts of things. But that was my first go. And then, believe it or not, that was my 20-minute trip. And over the next four weeks, three weeks, I flew 100 hours on a Spitfire. Uh, the engine was just a black mass up front. I didn't know the equipment that I had in my hand. I had a May West arm. I used a radio, which I'd never used before in my life. Uh, I had all sort of funny bits about the airplane I'd never heard of. And it was always all with the suck and see, you know. We just didn't know. And eventually I was sufficiently well trained to take it off and land without breaking it, to fly through cloud, to fly in the miserable weather conditions we were having at the time. And suddenly on... The 13th of June, 1940, and I'd be flying it because Dunkirk had happened in the meantime, which was the end of May, and the Germans were running rampant all over for Europe and having defeated France and Norway, Norway et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We had a war on our hands. We didn't, nobody knew anything about. And uh, my training on the Spitfire was really nil. I could fly it. I could uh, climb through cloud when I had to and, uh, you know, keep up with my leader and not either lead in standing, flying past him or, or do things he didn't want me to do. But I was completely untouched. And there's one thing about it. I couldn't shoot to save myself. And I went up to Acklington with the rest of my squadron, which was our arm and practice camp. And <clears throat> I flyed something like 30,000 rounds against a toad drogue or a flag or whatever it was. I didn't hit the target with one bullet. I, well, we were all firing out of range, really, I'm sure. And we were talking by... Uh, diagram deflection suiting, which we didn't attempt to do. And it became apparent to us that unless we got within about 50 yards of an enemy aircraft, almost close enough to touch, and you couldn't hit it at all. We were totally untrained as far as uh, uh, marksmanship was concerned. And in fact, after the war, long after the war, when I was at the School of Land Air Warfare, or school of air support. <clears throat> we did a close inquiry with all sorts of boffins and air ministry and 
and Farnborough on the, our effectiveness during the Battle of Britain. And it was finally a report was produced that of all the thousands of rounds fired during the Battle of Britain, only 3% were effective. The rest, 97% missed. And that was our marksmanship during the Battle of Britain and my marksmanship in particular. Well, I was going to ask you, the Spitfire has become such an extraordinary icon of, of aviation, of British life. Flying it for the first time, were you aware that you were in something quite magical? Well, I've been told there was, but actually it wasn't as magical in those days because nobody knew it very well. But I was conscious that I couldn't hit anything in it firing the gun, because in eight, we had the eight-gun thingy bob. And in those days, our early Spitfires would only fly on, uh, flying on 87-octane fuel, which we didn't have 100-octane until later in the Battle of Britain. We were fairly out of the primitive type of aircraft because some of our uh, sights on some of our aircraft were old ring and bead of the First World War. And uh, it was all fairly primitive stuff. But I was very much aware that the nose was too long. You couldn't take any deflection suiting because as soon as you were in a steep turn, in, in order to fire in front of your intended enemy, of course, it was lost underneath the nose. And uh, so it, you couldn't do anything except from deadline stern or from about 15 degrees deflection. So it had its problems. And, of course, it only had 85 gallons of fuel, which didn't keep, give you much time in the air, about an hour and a half. The, uh, and our engine was uh, 27 litres as opposed to the 109's engine of 39 litres, a much bigger engine. And we knew that they had uh, fuel injection, whereas we had SU carburetors, which every time you lowered the nose... The thing flew, flew to the top of the tube, and you've got a, a, a surface of fuel into the engine, and the engine stopped. And you've got lots of black, black smoke either side. And as, soon as, as long as you've applied negative D, the engine didn't work. And it was just for one, two, three, four, five seconds, something like that. But when you're fighting an urgent enemy, there's four or five seconds that deadly, and of course they can make 100 yards, 200 yards in front of you. So Tom, so your engine would just cut out? Yeah, it, it <laughs> billow black smoke out of it. It's it uh, uh, it too, too rich, you see. It's flooded with fuel. And then it, you'd have to restart it? No, or? no, no, no. It no, would just... It, it did bring itself back on again immediately. But it, it, uh, it, it, it's just a hiatus, if you like. It just didn't work that length of time. You sound to me like you're saying the uh, the Spitfire might not have been as great as everyone now thinks. But no, was no, it... no, I've always said it. I've always said it. It was, I'll go on to say this a little later, as an, as an effective fighter, it was less good than the 109. Less good. The 109 had better armament, uh, injection uh, fuel control, not an SU carburetor. Uh, a better supercharger, uh, it was lighter, it was more nimble. It could do a lot of things that we couldn't do in the Spitfire. 
you could the Spitfire had the slight edge of a 109A in terms of speed, but you have to work up that speed in order to catch it. No, it wasn't the 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 the, the, uh, the be all and end all of fighters, and I don't think any of us were telling them as we thought it was. We really thought the 109 was, in many ways, a more effective aircraft. Did I, I suddenly remember? You mentioned Dunkirk. Did it affect morale? Did word go around amongst the lads that Britain had suffered this great reverse? No, no, no. The only thing that came out, a lot of down south, uh, 74th Squadron, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they were closer to the enemy. And uh, they did fairly well at Dunkirk, which, as you see, is about 90, 100 miles away from Biggin Hill. Up north in, in Yorkshire, where we were, uh, we weren't involved at all. And we just heard about it. And no, it never occurred to me for a moment, nor indeed to any of my colleagues, that we were inferior to the enemy. We didn't know. We were British. We were be better than anything else you know, in the world. We were the British, the British Empire. We would never be beaten, no matter what. We were just blank-minded. We couldn't be beaten. It never occurred to us. There were 55 squadrons. And even though, during the Battle of Britain, uh, we only had 650 aircraft available to us, total, the Germans had 4,000 bombers and fighters. They were better than us in all, almost every respect. The only problem they had, the Luftwaffe was not built in order to invade England. They were just built as uh, to operate with the German army, which was perfectly good overland. It wasn't so good over the seas. So they had very short endurance periods. 39 litres would only give them about an hour and a half. So when they were in even in northern France attacking uh, escorting bombers as far away as uh, London, they would have to turn around and go back in about three quarters way through their flight. And the red light would come on at, uh, in their cockpit, which must have been very upsetting for them because they'd be 100 miles away from base with the red light coming on. And they had their problems. And, of course, they were over enemy territory. If they conked out, or and they had a lot of... Uh, Problems with their aircraft, really, one way or another. And they would fall into the channel before they got home. That's a lot of people in the channel who have never spoken of. But they had their problems. But as fighting organizations, they were better than them. We didn't have an army that worth a damn. Uh, our army, regular army, was first class. We didn't have the equipment. We didn't have the guns. We didn't have the tanks. The chapter, the, our army was a, a, a rifle and bayonet army. It was 1914-18 army. And we really could cope. The, the, the Germans were altogether modernized in every respect. Everything, and of course, they'd fought in Spain two years in the Spanish war. They had their tactics. They knew what they were doing. Their people were experienced. How we won, I do, well, I do know. Uh, we were better organized over our own country. 
Our maintenance our aircraft was wonderful. One of the things that was most noteworthy that when you know, there, there were 18 aircraft in a squadron, of which we would fly 12 as a formation, sometimes at the, under, uh, at the end of the day, having flown two, three, four, five times a day, five times a day, we'd be down to three aircraft. And then by 12 o'clock, 1,400 hours the next day, we went back to square one with the business of replacing aircraft. A system we had was absolutely first class. Mainly due, not entirely due to him, the little little Canadian fellow uh, who did Daily Express with it. Beaverbrook. Absolutely. A, a horrible little man, but nevertheless, he and Churchill together got things done. Action this day. So tell me about being deployed to the front line for the first time. After your training up up north, tell me about coming down to the southeast for the first time. Well, first of all, there is a dotted line between Liverpool and Hull. You don't know this, sir, but as soon as you go south, you notice it. I'd never flown south of the dotted line. And when I went to Boscombe Down, which was Salisbury, roughly, and I didn't, I wouldn't have recognized it even with a map. I just followed my leader and we landed at Boscombe Down, which was a, a, gra- a big grass airfield. <clears throat> and we were parked away in one small corner of it. And the war was going on above us, above cloud. And we lived either under the wings of our aircraft in order to shelter from the rain or the sun or whatever it is. We had big officers, we had camp kits. Uh, sort of uh, Indian style, you know. We didn't have people giving you cups of coffee or anything like that. But um, the airmen were intense. We didn't know to sit down. We sat on railing next door to us. uh, Everything was so primitive. And war was going on about us for the first two two days. The airfield next door to us was heavily bombed, almost as we watched. And we watched it with fascination. People were killed. The hangers were brought down. And then on the second day we were there, I remember that I was a duty officer. The duty officer, the young chaps, pilot officers. I was a pilot officer in those days, that particular time. And you lived in a, in a, in a hut or a tent all night with one telephone a wind-up telephone like that, and you kept in touch with an organization. We didn't know where it was, but a woman answered the other end of the line, and she kept in touch with what was happening in the rest of England. And I remember there all night having a chat with her and listening to what was going on. And then the following morning, on the 16th of August, I think it was, I got up and I had... My own aircraft, GNF. I always, my aircraft was always F because my name, middle name is Francis. I had GNF, always had GNF. And I got up early and uh, put my parachute in the way I wanted to be put on, not in the cockpit, but on the back uh, tailplane so you could strap it on. I had a, a routine in the system. We all have routine in the system. The following morning, in order 
that we were going to have a full day fighting. This is going to be my first full day fighting. And I turned up at about 7 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, and Nicholson, my flight commander, uh, he was 23, I was just turned 20. He said, I, was good. I had ginger hair in those days. He said, Ginger, uh, you're not flying today. And I said, don't be said, of course I'm flying. I, you know, we were on very, very personal, uh, friendly terms. So I argued with him a lot. He said, no, no, you've been on bed. You were on duty all night. I don't want you to fly today. Go into Salisbury, go to the films or something. But I don't want you to fly. So uh, we argued, and I was very cross with him. I really was. And he handed my airplane over to a fellow called King, Martin King, who he was actually, uh, what's his name? Nicholson was six feet three. I was six feet three. King was six feet three. And we're all very tall people. And we used to fly in threes in those days. And uh, he handed my aircraft, GNF, which I loved like a brother. And I polished it, you know, to him. And I cautioned him very severely. I said, don't you dare damage this aeroplane. And anyway, lunchtime came and I went to the mess. I was just in the process of eating my first, whatever it was, and suddenly they scrambled. I went back to the uh, uh, scramble point and heard news that they'd intercepted over Southampton somewhere. And we had lost three aircraft. So then an aircraft arrived back in a shambolic state, and it was one of the people, the other third person of the flight, was also, his name was King, a squad leader King. He was a supernumerary who was coming to be with us to learn how to fly more or less, because he went to command 141 squad, 151 squad. So uh, the two missing were Nicholson and King, the other King. They'd both been shot down. And then we heard what had happened to them. And the story was that uh, they'd been bounced by uh, enemy 110s over Southampton, had both been shot down. Nicholson had been shot rather badly and wounded. His aircraft had been shot, uh, caught on fire. He had bailed out, but in the process of bailing out, he had uh, his aircraft which very often did, who had shot at him, overshot him because of the increased speed and suddenly appeared in front of him. So very bravely, according to Nicholson, he climbed back into the cockpit and shot it down. And then he bailed out and disappeared by his parachute, came down by parachute, heavily, hideously burned about the hands and the feet and, and the face. and. He said, on that, when he talked to me about it afterwards, he said, you know, Jindra, uh, when I, uh, I was coming down, you know, there was a distinct smell of roast pork. He said, he got down to the ground, and then, of course, people have been watching from the ground. The army, parts of the army have been watching, people from the civilian life have been watching. And then uh, the army had decided that they were invaded, going to be invaded. And the aircraft coming down with the invasion by paratroops, troops. 
So they fired at uh, Nicholson, badly wounded him again. Fortunately, in the backside, they had to have a backside pointing towards them. And he fell to the ground in a heap, his parachute around him, and horribly wounded and hideously burned. The people who had shot him down or shot at him argued between themselves as to what they'd done because they realized to be shunted the a friend, not the enemy, came to blows. The sergeant in the army who'd shot him uh, was felled by another man who hit him. And uh, the ridiculous situation arose when eventually uh, Nicholson, when the, the ambulance first arrived with him, uh, went to take the hospital in the same ambulance that the chap who shot him down. Can you imagine? It only happened in England. And then my aircraft, what about had my, my aircraft was also shot down. And uh, King came down in my aircraft, came down out of my aircraft, he bailed out. And he floated towards the ground. And the army did a better job on him, better job, and they killed him. They shredded his parachute. He fell into somebody's back garden and died in somebody's arms. I lost my aircraft. I lost two of my friends. The third member of the flight, the little section, squadron leader, Wizzy King. We used to call him Wizzy. He was frightfully old, 30, you know, that sort of age. And he went off to his quarters and immediately began to write a book about how to deal with the enemy. And uh, <clears throat> he was posted to 151 Squadron North Weald a few days later and was killed within a week. It isn't Dan Snow's history, it's Battle of Britain Day. So we're talking to one of the few, Tom Neal. More after this. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery 
going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's very hard for people who have never been in combat to understand what that must be like when, when you lose on the first day of battle, you lose two friends. Uh, how did you how did you cope with that? How did you keep getting up every morning and, and cope? Well, it may surprise you today that when Nicholson was shot down, we thought it all a bit of a joke. First of all, it happens thirty odd miles away, so you don't see it happening. You don't see the blood and the guts and the horrors of landing and people being killed because usually it happens next county or 50 miles or 50 miles away. And Nick and Nick, a great, great friend, I knew him all his life, had been telling us how, he telling me how to fly a Spitfire for a start. He telling me how to do this, do, do that. And there he was on his very first flight has been shot down. And we thought it was a great joke. And it was only when a day or two later, a letter came from, from him written by his nurse, very, very brief, just a whole a line. He said, I have been shot down. I am not dead, more or less, but I'm recovering. And nothing more was said than that. The adjutant went down to see him and came back and said, oh, my God, he's in a terrible state. He's black from head to foot. He's horribly burned around the face and the uh, hands. Uh, and he didn't come up very slowly. And then... As Nick got better by the day, his letters got longer, you see. And uh, <laughs> finally, we made a whole joke of it. And, of course, you probably know from your history, that was in August 1940. And on November the 17th, 1940, he was awarded the Victoria Cross. Uh, poor old Martin King, he just disappeared into a... Obscurity, he was just shut down with just a, a casualty. And did that not make you? No. Didn't want us to scam. It's just the things that happen. You're so busy concentrating what goes on the business of taking off, climbing up through cloud, fighting, doing the things you've got to do that uh, you're, you're preoccupied by the main things, not the trivial things like people being killed. August. Uh, 1940 was a rather dramatic month, but certainly not me. For me, I did a lot, lot of flying in August 1940, but we didn't see much in the way of the enemy, uh, which is rather surprising because a lot of action was taking place in Bristol and Southampton and the south coast of England. But then we moved up to Northfield in Essex, which took us into the Area of fighting, which is rather rather dramatic fighting, and they'd lost a lot of people up there. So we came up to North Weald and we replaced 56 Squadron, which is a very fa famous squadron in the area. 
And we found that we couldn't operate from there initially as we had to ch change the radios because we were going from transition, we were going transition from VHF to the high frequency. We had a high frequency, we didn't have VHF. So we changed our aircraft and uh, we had a 56 squadrons aircraft. We had VHF and our aircraft, which were rather nicer than theirs, had to be flown by 56 back to Boscombe Down. And uh, that's why you see a lot of pictures of 56 squadron flying uh, when it really is 249 squadron flying, but not to worry. We got that on the 1st of September. We were thrown into the maelstrom of the Battle of Britain, and it was right on our doorstep, and we had flying against us in Romford and up to Thames and Northfield itself. Northfield was very badly bombed on the 21st of September. And uh, I came up on the 2nd, for some reason or other, I can't remember. And the 3rd of September was the day I remember most because it was my first day of action. And I was John Grant. John Grant, he was a squad commander. And uh, he wasn't a very good fighter pilot, and he admitted himself. But he was a nice man, very good administratively. And I was flying with him, and we were scrambled from North Wheel, and we climbed up over Essex to 18,000, 19,000 feet. And the enemy didn't appear, which we felt was rather surprising. We flew back to North Wheel, landed, were getting refueled, and we were scrambled again. And we took off immediately. And this time, my goodness me, the airmen did appear. So 30 or 40 uh, Dornier 17 bombers, each carrying four or six bombs, uh, appeared at about 16,000, 17,000 feet, escorted by about 100 Messerschmitt Warners. And I was at the leading edge of the formation because flying with a squadron commander. And suddenly I find myself looking at these German aircraft, the first really I'd seen with the ugly marks on the side of their aircraft and so close that you could see their propellers churning round. And we eventually got so close that I could almost reach up and touch them. And I remember thinking, why are we here? Why are we not doing this or that? Because very shortly, I'm going to be killed. I'm almost within feet of these things. Then suddenly things happened. People were diving. And I was diving after them. Mustn't be left. Mustn't be left. Aircraft were all around me. And we'd done nothing. And suddenly I looked over the side of my aircraft, and they were all, we were all over North Wheel. And the airfield had disappeared completely and utterly. The enormous clouds of black and brown smoke, they bombed about 34, 300 bombs on the airfield. Our airfield had disappeared. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, the city of Blythes has bombed our airfield. How are we going to land now? And I don't remember what happened then. The bombers turned away, but were engaged by other chaps from the squadron who had taken off separately with us. And we went down... How, what to do? Well, there's nothing in King's regulations that tells you what to do when your airfield has just been bombed. And 
written out completely. And we landed, to weaving between the bomb holes like dirt track riders, hoping we'd not fall into the holes. And there were 300 or so holes on the airfield. But we took it all on our stride. We stopped, turned into wind or turned on our hard standing, and the airmen appeared off from the shelters, came to refuel our aircraft. Uh, we took off again straight before even the aircraft had been refueled, and we're off down south. And then I find myself looking at London for the first time in my life, over the Thames, climbing off 15, 16, 17, 18, 20,000 feet down towards Dover. And the balloons at Dover, I'd never seen balloons over Dover. I'd never seen balloons over London before, even though there were thousands of balloons over London to prevent low German attacks. We flew over Dover, and then a 30 or 40 or 50 fight German fighters appeared. So close flew over the top of us, and I was fascinated by them, all the interesting colors on the side of the aircraft. I was fascinated by it. I didn't think of being shot down or anything like that. And we didn't attack them. We couldn't. They were too high up. And they didn't attack us. And we flew around for a bit. And we circled over Kent, Canterbury, that sort of thing. And finally, we were brought back to Northfield, up in an hour and three quarters. And that was my first introduction to German bombers and fighters en masse. But I was not a bit frightened at all. Not a bit frightened. Although we badly damaged our airfield, we couldn't live on the airfield for a time. We had to go live in, uh, down the road in the local town and get barred. We didn't have any water. We didn't have any gas or electricity. It was, a, it was a, 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 some big day to be remembered. And that was the 1st of September. We lost two or three people the day before, on the 2nd of September. Uh, we shot down a couple of airmen. I hadn't shot them down. I was just not flying that particular day. But we were introduced to the, the war proper. And then for the 30 days of September, or throughout the Battle of Britain, I flew 141 times against the enemy, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes four times a day, even five times a day starting at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, dawn, half an hour before dawn, doing, going on until 11 o'clock at night. There were no union hours in the Orient Fighter Command. And we lost a lot of people. Sometimes we were down to three or four aircraft to the end of the day. And we'd be replaced with aircraft by lunchtime the following day. It was a moving picture. And you were so busy with the events at hand you were too busy to be frightened or upset. You just got on with the job. And you were apprehensive, of course, but particularly when you heard information coming over the telephone because of the radar uh, uh, showings on the radar screen. 50, 50 the enemy building up over, over Cali, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And you knew they're all heading for you. Frightening. Did you survive because you were a good pilot? No. Or because you were lucky? No, I don't. We flew in formation. And lots of things happened by chance. First of all, the flak, our own flak, kept on flying when we were flying 
or not. So we had to contend not only with the response to the enemy, but the fact that Ardoni and Akak were busy fighting at the same time. And you, you took off, you climbed up, not forgetting that Britain is seldom without cloud. You had to climb up through clouds, sometimes a thousand feet thick, sometimes five thousand feet thick, ten thousand feet thick, keeping in close formation before you got through to the end and suddenly you were above the cloud and in stark contrast to the white cloud underneath, the enemy could see you for miles around. And it was all the time you were busy, you would see the enemy and you'd go towards the flak, clouds and clouds of flak, our, our own anti-aircraft. You wouldn't see the enemy. And suddenly in the midst of the flak, 30, 40, 50 of the bombers uh, over Canterbury, over North uh, uh, Maidstone, and you'd see the fighters behind them, 100 fighters, 200, 300. And the 15th of September, there were 2,000 of us in the air at the same time. It's hard to imagine. But uh, they were there all the time, not, not, not in greater numbers than 100, 150, but there all the time, attacking our airfields. And, uh, and eventually, of course, when they changed their system, and changed their general plan, they attacked London as well. But uh, it was a constant, it was a constant, I flew somewhere 56 times, I think, during September 1940. And I'll tell you one or two of the, the incidents. On the, I think it was the 6th, or what is this, the 7th of September, we lost half the squadron of 12 aircraft in about two minutes. Well, they're all shut down by fighters uh, because as we attacked the bombers, which we were briefed to do as our main task, we would be attacked by German fighters behind us, sitting 100 yards behind us and shooting us down like pigeons, absolutely. And we caught fire very, very quickly in the hurricane because of the positioning of the fuel tank. As soon as the fuel tanks were pinched, they would catch fire. And the pilots, as I say, used to be enveloped in flames. So you had to get out of the aeroplane within a minute, two minutes, otherwise you, you were burnt to death. More hurricanes were shot down as a result of fire than any Spitfire that was. Spitfires, by and large, were because their fuel tanks were in front of the pilot. They were comparatively... A, immune from fire in the air, although they were shot down for other reasons, but the hurricanes are especially uh, prone to fire. As young pilots, did you, did you get angry? Did you think, why are they no. sending us up in these no. aircraft? We're going to burn to death. No, no it, it was, I almost hesitate to say this. It was a huge game. It was a huge game, like a vicious game of rugby. You could, you could possibly have a leg broken or an arm broken, whatever it is. The penalty of not succeeding was to lose your life. And, uh, but it was a huge game. We, we weren't really, when, when you're actually in the fighting, you're so engaged on what's going on around you. You're so engaged in climbing through the cloud, uh, weaving, uh, fainting, rather like a boxer, 
uh, avoiding this, doing this, uh, firing at the enemy, breaking away, coming back, looking for the enemy. Where's the enemy gone? You know, and it's an exciting business. And then you find yourself over Maidstone now, it's south of the Thames, doing this, doing that. And if you had some success, and the success would come in a, a, an unusual way. I remember the first time I shot down an aircraft. I didn't really shot down, shoot it down. It flew in front of me. And I remember seeing a 109 literally within yards of me, almost teach, reach out and touch it. Because you almost see the pilot in the cockpit, all the various colors on the side of the uh, uh, the, the aircraft itself, because most of them had yellow noses at that stage. Yellow was more observable from the air. And this chap just flew in front of me, and I didn't have to do anything except fire my gun. And he was smoking. And then, of course, that is at 15, 16,000 feet. You don't know whether he crashes or whether you don't. If he bails out, you know it's a victory, but otherwise... It could be aircraft on fire, which uh, or looks uh, smoking or whatever it is. But that's at 16,000 feet. You turn away, you lose him. And then he comes down from 16,000 feet towards the ground. And he's attacked by four other aircraft with four different hearts. 16 other squadrons also take, I've taken their turn at that. So the four, five aircraft shot down. Whereas there are only one, you know, that's how many seconds of machine gun bullets did you have if you just held the held the trigger pressed oh, that, Well, you had 300 rounds per gun, and you had eight guns, 2,400 rounds per gun. And roughly at about 1,100 rounds per minute, you had 14.7 seconds of ammunition, assuming you fired them all in one burst. But you didn't. You fired them in two-second bursts or three-second bursts because the guns got too hot. Usually, I would have great propensity to fire, to, to misfire if you did that. But normally, the, the machine guns worked perfectly. They were um, Colt machine guns made by Browning in, the, in our country. They worked perfectly. We didn't have any cannons before. But uh, sometimes, you know, you would hit a, an aircraft with two, three or three rounds, which was nothing. Sometimes you would have to hit it with 20, 30, 40, 303 before it went down. The aircraft themselves reacted in different ways. The Yonkers 88s were very, very tough indeed, very difficult to shoot down. Uh, the Dorniers, strangely enough, rather more simple. The uh, Heinkel 111s, Rather big, slow, sluggish aircraft we found are easy. But the Yonkers 87, very agile, get away very, very quickly. Each, each aircraft was different. Did, did you feel like, as September was going on, did you feel like Britain and the RAF were winning? Or was it just completely... Yeah. We knew. Well, we, had, we, had, we didn't know. Um, on the 7th of September, we only learned much later that Hitler issued an edict that they weren't to concentrate on us in the air. The original plan was to shoot us down in the air, attack our airfields or the points at which the aircraft were built, 
but he changed the plan because Berlin was bombed by just a few aircraft, almost by mistake. And he ordered it differently because they're very conscious of the fact that they didn't want to be attacked. They could attack everybody else in Europe, but they didn't want to be attacked at all. They're not, they weren't designed, really. The Air Force not designed to, to defend the country. They were designed to attack all the time. And because it was, Berlin was attacked, he ordered the plan to be changed. London was going to be attacked. And, of course, they concentrated their minds and effort on London. And London was attacked with the results we know. The East End was actually flattened. And similarly, other towns throughout the country. But this is, they, it is said, was their undoing. They changed the plan. What you don't do in war is change the plan in the middle. But did you, did you feel... When they, were you aware that they changed that plan? No, no, uh, not okay. nothing more. Uh, and so you were aware we, we, that... We just got on with the fighting. We were doing it two, three, four, five times a day. And we're concentrating, weaving. You know, it, it's the, the job at hand. We didn't talk about strategy or anything like that. We don't even know we were winning. All we heard at the end of each day was the six o'clock news. Or 54 aircraft have been shut down. 26 of our own have been forced down a set of 14 of our pilots escaped by parachute, that sort of thing, until on the 15th of September, which was rather a unique day, uh, we shot down apparently 185 aircraft in one day. In fact, it was not true. In fact, we shot down, in fact, on that day, 60, 65, 70. It was enough to deter absolutely Hitler because he was going to, the plan, Hitler's plan, called for the invasion to take place on the 15th of September 1940. He had to postpone that. Two days later, he, he postponed it again. And a little later, again, he postponed it indefinitely. So he made up his mind because he couldn't achieve his aim on the 15th of September 1940. But we didn't know. And we went on fighting just the same as he did back into September, into November and uh, October and November. And if you count the November uh, tailing off because of the bad weather, I flew 157 times against the enemy. I bailed out once. I had a couple of very nasty crashes. I lost four out of four hurricanes, one way or another. Uh, on the 15th of September, um, a rather unique occasion. I was attacking uh, a Dornier over Maidstone, very, very close indeed. I learned by experience the only way to hit an aeroplane almost to get so close to touch it. I mean, probably I was, what, 50, 75 yards from it. And you complained, he said, 75 yards, you literally lean out and touch it with your hand. And as I was firing it and drew back for a second go, so to speak, Suddenly, two, aircraft, two, two bodies detached themselves from the aircraft and came floating past me, their, their parachutes not furled at all. And I thought for a moment, my gosh, they were going to crash into my airscoop. They didn't quite, but whirling arms and legs, they went left past me a few yards away, left and right. And later, that aircraft was crashed into the Thames estuary, 15,000 feet below, but I only knew that later. Years later, in fact, who it was or who the pilots were. 
And of the four crew, three of them were killed. One was uh, remained alive. Then almost as I turned away, I saw another Dornier 17, which cut across from going eastwards down the, the, uh, the Thames. And I flew after it hard because you couldn't catch people very quickly in a hurricane. They didn't have the uh, difference in speeds, noticeably difference in speeds. And I was joined by another uh, Spitfire with EB on its side, which was 41 squadron. The chap called Eric Locke, Sawnoff Locke, we used to call him, a very small fellow. And we flew in pursuit of this Dornit, firing at it from time to time, in and out of cl- cloud, as it gradually reduced height, and eventually it dived to the ground or dived to the sea. We followed it right down to the sea, and I remember following it very close, and we damaged it so badly that. We, didn't need, we, we were in despair that we were going to lose it. We went out to sea, crossed a, a convoy of ships, uh, out to sea, and just when we got to the point where we thought we would lose it, we suddenly saw it getting slower and slower, and gradually it slowed down sufficiently, a tail touched the ground, and it landed in a splurry of water, sank, came to the top, which most of them did, did. And we circled round looking for survivors. There weren't any. And then we flew home full of grief. And we shot down, a, according to our reckoning, 22 aircraft that day. But it was an exciting day. And that was the day the whole of Sussex and Essex, Kent, that's about Hampshire, 2,000 aircraft took, took part in battle. It was a great day. Uh, I researched the roof. I think I flew four times. I, I got to remember. So, you, so what's it like fl- flying four or five times? Give me a sense of what's the, the, the sounds and the smells. I mean, are you, are you sleeping under the wings? Are they refueling? No, we, we, sli- 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 slept between flights. We didn't sleep at night because of the noise. The bomb was going out at night, going to either bomb London or bomb cities throughout the, the country, Leicester, various other places. And... Uh, and I remember being on television with David Jason, you know, uh, and he said, uh, I don't know, where did you sleep? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we just slept in our clothes. We ate in our clothes between flights. And I trained myself, I said, to uh, sleep at every convenient time of the day. And I grabbed him by the lapels and said, with any, any, is there just a possible chance? I nod off as I'm talking to you, you see, which raised a bit of a laugh. But, um, but that's it. We just slept between flights in our clothes. Sometimes we didn't even take our clothes off at night. Sometimes we floated in our pajamas. Sometimes we flew in our pajamas. Um, we did everything that was necessary at the time. It was a great occasion. You didn't have time to be upset about it. You just got on and did the job. And did, did, were your mum's fears justified? Were you all drinking too much? No, not that. We very seldom had the day to ourselves. We'd, we'd go down to the local pub and the boys would drink beer. I didn't drink beer. I couldn't cope with beer. And any time I showed sign of drinking whiskey, the adjunct would prevent me from doing it. So I was a goody-goody. I, I didn't smoke. I didn't go out with girls. I didn't. 
didn't drink for anything. So it stood me in good stead. Some of the boys must have done. Oh, yes, they did. But there were no wives around. There were no girlfriends around. We didn't see any women or anything like that. Uh, it was before the days, although there were rafts around, they were not on Northfield. And uh, we led a very staid existence, uh, contained absolutely with hour-to-hour excitement. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. We, we flew all these occasions four or five times a day over Kent, Sussex, uh, not uh, Sussex, well, Sussex as well, but Kent, uh, Essex. And you don't see the ground except in vast expanse of space and this green and panorama underneath your eye. But you, you, you don't spend time looking at the ground and you don't see it. And you see the, the Thames and the curling uh, estuary of, in the distance. And uh, the other day, and the other day last year, when I went to Goodwood, was it? Mm, for, the big, for the big fly pass. That's what I flew in the Spitfire. I, they, came, they came to the center um, helicopter up for me. And we took off from Seething, which is our next door airfield here, with you, with you, wasn't it? And we flew down at about 900 feet. And we flew down over uh, the Dartmouth Gather crossing, uh, across uh, uh, Kent and Sussex. And for the first time, I looked at my own country and how beautiful it was. I'd never seen my own country before. It passed very slowly underneath. You could look down in a helicopter right underneath your eyes. And I thought, what a beautiful country this nation is. And I saw it then that I'd never seen it before, even though I'd flown over a hundred, literally a thousand times. But you get completely involved in what you see at 20,000 feet, 25,000 feet, 30,000 feet. And there's always the point to be remembered that the Battle of Britain was fought at 20,000 feet, mostly. And sometimes it took 20, 30 miles or more for the aircraft to hit the ground, the bomber, whatever it was, or the fighter. Sometimes they bailed out, sometimes they landed in the jungle, but you didn't know. You long since lost, lost track of them. So, you know, precise information, you never know. You never know. When the young pilots came into your squadron, by, by the end of the battle, the young, youngsters coming in, were they properly trained? No. Was I properly trained? No. I've asked this question many times before. Were you probably? No, of course we weren't. We couldn't shoot to save ourselves. Uh, and there's, there's a saying... In Liverpool, you know, we couldn't hit a pig in a jigger, and we couldn't shoot. We we did very badly, and we had pretty poor weapons, but we improved. We improved. But uh, and so, what did you tell the youngsters coming in? What what, what, what after well, you'd there flown? There weren't any youngsters. There were people like me. Yeah, but the the, the ones who were just coming straight from training. <clears throat> what what were you able to tell them by well, the end of the night? They month? went straight from training normally. Either they come from another squadron because you tended to get rid of the, your worst chaps, the, the chap next door. You know? uh, but we, they didn't come straight. You usually went through OTU, Operational Training Unit. They've had 15, 20, something like ours, 
on a Spitfire or a Hurricane. Very, very few people came new to that aircraft. And they would simply fly as number twos or number threes or number fours. Just follow your leader. Follow your leader. Don't do this and don't do that. And just maintain uh, exactly the same in the First World War. Von Richthofen was shot down by uh, almost by people who'd never been airborne before. So it happened all the time. We, uh, you got people. No, you, you got used to anything between the. Uh, there are the, <clears throat> the years of 19 and 25. The heart and the mind can put up with anything. It's when you go for 25 and more, you suddenly begin to think, why am I doing this? Uh, what is the effect? I remember when I was in the American, I was asked to go and attack in the Mustang to uh, go down to Cornwall, get refueled there, and fly 600 miles down to the Spanish border, attack some flying boats, and then, in the event, shoot down about four, four or six of them, come all the way back. And I remember thinking before it happened, why am I doing this? Is it going to affect the war? What am I going to achieve? And as you get older, you become a little more circumspect about what you're doing and a little more cautious. But when you're young, it doesn't really matter. You, you're just told what to do, and you do it. And you do it with excitement and joy, and you just get on with it, that's all. Where do I start? Yeah. In fact, I was thinking, it was the other day of my three sons, uh, two of them were in the services, and uh, they'd been in positions when I was worrying about them. Mm. And I realized for the first time what it is for a parent to suddenly uh, think of her nearest and dearest, mm. or your nearest and dearest being killed. And to lose a son or a daughter. To, to, to be on leave. I think it must be particularly difficult actually nowadays because Afghanistan was such a, mm. you know, a mission where at least the Battle of Britain, you knew that what was at stake. Whereas I think it'd be very tough if, if I was a commanding officer telling a young widow why her husband had been killed in Afghanistan, mm. and then when we just we've just pulled out. It's horribly interesting. I, mean, I was I was going to Buckingham Palace you know, some months ago. It's not important when, and I was being entertained in the barracks next door. What is it? The uh, God's God's places by a young lady who was delightful. She looked about sixteen. And she was the pilot officer in, or whatever it is in the Air Force. She was chatting me up and giving me coffee and biscuits and things like that. And when she turned away to speak to somebody else, I spoke to somebody, one of her uh, friends, and I said, who is the girl over there? She's very young. Uh, she tells me she's part of three squadron. She said, yes, she's a flight commander in three squadron. She's not 16, she's 27. Yeah. She's got three children, that sort of thing. Goodness me. And I thought, my God, how this lovely child is being thrown into bottle. You know, the possibility of being pounded to destruction. Uh, this is just too horrible to think about. It's horrid. Horrid. Can I ask about your bailing out? Yeah. The station commander of North Wales was a wonderful chap, he's Irish. Irish, 
Uh, he, had, he knew no rules at all. And he used to fly with us in 249 Scotland. He has one of our aircraft painted in his colour. But he never lead. He always flew number four in the box, the first four in the box. And invariably, because I was a senior flight commander then, aged just 20, uh, in, in front of me. And uh, we'd had a traumatic day. We shot down about three aircraft over the Thames Estuary that morning, lunchtime. And we were off, uh, going in the afternoon about four o'clock, and it was getting towards the end of the day. We were above cloud, and we were going backwards and forwards over Maidstone. And uh, he decided, because he was Irish and he didn't obey the rules, that he would go somewhere else in because there was news of activity elsewhere. So he disappeared. And I, being an orderly sort of guy, just filled up the gap and we'd left. And we flew around. And then by four o'clock came and I he was thinking of tea and, you know, currant cake and things like that. And my wife was on other things. And suddenly there was a heck of a bang at the back end. And... Uh, the airplane was just torn from my grasp. It stood on its tail, went straight up in the air, turned over on its back and began to spin. I could do nothing about it. But you're very loath to get rid of an aircraft and get out of an aircraft that still has the engine running. And I sat there upside down, being spun around like a squash ball being thrown around, going backwards and forwards. And... Uh, then I got down to 7,000 feet, and I remembered on the way up, I know that we started at 18,000 feet, that we'd, uh, we'd gone into cloud at 7 and come out at top at 8, and I was going down the other way, and it was 8 going down to 7, and I had to do something about getting out of the airplane. I was having great trouble. And eventually I got out of the airplane, and I was lying along the front uh, fuel tank in the direction of the propeller with my head about 10 feet away from the propeller with everything whirling around in front of me, with my toes around the uh, windscreen. That's the only thing that was holding me in position was my long tube of my oxygen thing which was holding me. In, 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 in position. And suddenly it broke, and I, I there was a heck of a bang on my head on the wing, and suddenly I was facing free. And I came to, and uh, my first thought was, well, is my parachute opened or not? And then I looked up as far as I could, and I went down. You always were instructed to go down the buttons of your apparel, whatever it is, to look for the ripcord, and it was in position. So obviously I hadn't uh, pulled it out of position, pulled the ripcord, the parachute developed, and everything was silent, and that was at about 1,000 feet. I fell into a, uh, a, uh, a wood, quite tall trees, fell out of the wood onto my head, damaged myself and my leg, and lay there unconscious in the ground with my head in mud. And then I heard voices and saw feet, two pairs of women's feet and two pairs of men's feet. 
and they were discussing who I was, whether I was the enemy or whether I was friend. And they couldn't quite decide. And the men were not about to give me the benefit of the doubt. They would uh, treat me as enemy and string me up because there were lots of bits of nastiness done on enemy pilots. The two women felt that I might possibly be friends and that they should hand, uh, hold their hand for a moment. And then, by the grace of God, two, a car came up and two army officers appeared and identified me as being on their side and prevented me trying to do the, the wrong thing. Uh, you never pick a wounded chap up from the ground and try to stand him up because he could be very badly wounded. You leave him there to start with and find out what the hell's wrong with him. And I was left on the ground. They tried to stand me up, and they couldn't. And I was put back on the ground like a fish on the slab. And eventually I got sufficiently able to stand, and I was taken to a local ACAC battery in order to uh, wash and make contact with, with my squadron that I'd come down safely. But I wasn't able to do that, and I, because uh, the whole the telephone system had been put out of action until about 10 o'clock that night, by which time my family had already been written to and they were packing my kit, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, I can't keep, I reached um, Northfield with another bit of transport, and I was taken in, I was put on the billiard table, that was the only flat place there was around. And it was decided I had damaged my uh, uh, hips and leg, and I'd been sent home. I didn't want to be sent home. I didn't want to tell my parents that I was ill or, you know, damaged in any way. So I went home by train, trying to describe, to, 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 to uh, disguise a very nasty limp. But they never knew. It was only months later that I went on a... Uh, a tour of the mills in Lancashire, talking to the girls, telling them how wonderful they were making parachutes and so on. That uh, Lord, who was his name? Uh, I can't remember. Who was the chap in charge of publicity? Mm. Wrote, wrote to me at my home. The letter was opened by my parents and who read for the first time that their son had been badly damaged and um, burned out, which... He took me to task immediately. Why was I told? <laughs> but uh, no, it was uh, an amusing experience. A lot of people were badly treated when they landed in this country and, of course, in Germany, where our chaps were landed there. It wasn't all sweetness and light. The pearly kings, you know, were jolly, happy chaps, uh, like you see on television. They were vicious buggers every now and again. They really were. And so speaking of other myths of the battle, what other myths were there? Well, there's a book about it. There's a chap called, who came up the other day, has a Jewish name, a very famous writer, and all about the nastiness behind the scenes, things that happened during the Battle of Britain. I could try and find out. In fact, I, if you can get, I'll keep in touch with him and I'll tell you about it. It's, it's an eye-opener. There's a lot of nastiness went on. In, in terms of corruptness and everything else. It wasn't all sweetness and light. 
why, why did we win the battle? Just briefly, so why did we win the Battle of Britain? A series of mishaps, I suppose. The Germans weren't suited to the job they were up to. Uh, they were much better trained than us. They had better equipment. They didn't have, or they had radar in exactly the same way we had. It has been noised about that they didn't have, but they had, of course they had. The radar on that ships was wonderful, but they didn't have the defense system that we had. The defense system was wonderful, first class. And the supply system was wonderful, was absolutely first class. And the replenish, we were never short of aircraft, never short of aircraft. But we were short of pilots towards the end. And those of us, and don't forget in fighter command, there were 80% volunteer reserves by the end of uh, November 1940. We were all VR, untrained, but learning on the job, learning on the job. We got better and better. The aircraft peaks and troughs. Sometimes we were better than the Germans. Sometimes we weren't. Sometimes they were miles ahead of us, the Focke-Wulf on 90. It's far, far better than anything that we had for a time. But then we would do this, do that to our aircraft, and, well, improve. Peaks and troughs all the time. But, uh, no, that's, there's so much happened in my life that it makes me think that there is a chap up there pulls a string. Because in June 1940, we were being beaten into a pulp in Malta, and suddenly the Americans upsticked and went to Poland and took on the Russians on the 1st of June, 1941. And they were, came within an ace of winning in the West, in, in the East. How they were stopped, nobody knows, but they were. And we lost a mountain of people in the West because Joe Stalin was forever telling the Western governments to, to us, because there's nobody else, to attack in the West, do something in the West, to relieve the pressure on us in the East. And a lot of people in fighter command doing useless jobs in France and Belgium, a lot of senior officers being shot down, uh, attacking warehouses and attacking things with 303s, mm. waste of time. And a lot of bad decisions were made. Uh, long, a lot of bad advice given by such people as Barda, or dare I mention it. Um, oh, sometimes you wonder, I don't know how we won. I really don't. I really don't. It's just a series of events. But by the grace of God, I can only say. So do you think the victory in the Battle of Britain was due in large part to the fact you were fighting over friendly territory. Much of it, absolutely so. Absolutely so. Uh, we st did so with, despite the Spitfire being lauded above all things, it wasn't the best aircraft in the world. The Germans in the main had the better aircraft. Uh, they used them the wrong way. They did the wrong thing at the wrong time. They attacked the wrong targets of the the wrong time for them, and uh, mistakes were made on both sides, and their mistakes were probably better, greater than ours. That's a brilliant summary. When did you personally think to yourself, 
I think we're going to win this. I think. I never, it was never in my mind that we wouldn't have been. The only, look at it the other way. The day that I thought we weren't about to win it was the day the Prince of Wales was uh, sunk by the Japanese because the forces against us were so great. And I didn't see how that we even possibly win it. And we lost the naval elements of the Navy that were our pride and joy. We were doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that saddened me. And I remember discussing it in Malta and me achieving uh, a certain amount of uh, acrimony with my fellow mates around the dinner table when I said, I, I, we, we are a perilous, at a perilous point. But that was the first time we ever, thereafter, before and after that, I never thought for a moment we'd ever lose. So during the Battle of Britain, in the summer of 1940, you never thought we were going to lose? Never for a moment, no. No, never, ever. Uh, I was aware of our deficiencies, but uh, I was surrounded by wonderful people, uh, some of whom were not very good because, you know, like every fighter pilot, every bomber uh, squadron, as people are superlatively good, the ordinary run-of-the-mill chap and the people who are downright poor. But uh, they all have them. Um, James Holland wants me to... You have to ask a story about D-Day. Just tell me quickly, what, what, what's, uh, what did you do on the 6th and 7th of June well, 1944? I, I, uh, I was at the 100th fighter wing, and the chap who commanded the ring was uh, Homer L. Sanders. And Homer L. Sanders was the archetypal bad uh, general. You know, he bit the end off his cigars. He spat out things. He was a tough guy. He looked like a, a, uh, a Mexican hitman. He used to go around as though he was walking on hot coals, you know, with his hands by the side of his six, six gun. And in fact, he was a delightful man when you know him. He knew all about history. And uh, I got to know him very well. And eventually I knew him for years. And I was with him when he died in New Mexico oh, 20 years later. But uh, anyway, I used to fly his, his uh, Mustang. That, that's the, the one that you see behind you. And that was a wonderful aircraft. And because he didn't fly it himself, I did. And I had carte blanche to fly where I liked, doing what I liked in his aeroplane. And on the uh, 6th of uh, June, 1944, I think I was airborne that day. We'd heard that it had taken place the following evening, or the previous evening. And I remember I saw on the 6th, I went over the landing area, over Omaha. We had two, or the Americans had two uh, uh, landing beaches, Omaha and Utah. The, the British had three. You probably have. I flew over Omaha, which is one of the big ones, but I was deterred by the fact that um, there were 18 inch shells were whistling past my ear from HMS Rodney and whatever it was. I thought I'd get out of this place immediately. I flew back and I was operating from Headcorn in, in Kent. And the following day, I took off the following morning. I did the same journey, and even then, I didn't think it was safe to go anywhere near the Omaha beaches because there was a lot going on underneath. And I came back, and I landed, and I remember 
I thought, I'll have a cup of coffee. So we were living in the field in Headcorn, in the field next door to Headcorn Village. And I was going past Homer L. Sanders' caravan. And the door opened, and Homer L. Sanders and general, another general came out. And I just happened to be passing. They begged me across, and I was introduced, and we had a chat about what was going on. And this chap, the extra general, said, well, he was uh, going, going to Omaha Beach. I said, you can't go to I've just been there. And there's, there's nowhere to land. He's, he had his own poisonal uh, C-45. He had his own aircraft. And he'd been instructed to go and land at the Omaha Beach. So I said, all brave and dashing, um, well, if... if uh, the general's permission, I'll, I'll escort you. Would you like me to escort you in my uh, P-51? Oh, that'll be fine. So we took off together with him in a, a Dakota and me in a, what's his name, circling round, figures around him. And we got to the Omaha beach. And there were masses of everything all around. Ships, things trundling backwards towards the shore. And... Lo and behold, a whole tribe of uh, C-45s or Dakotas were landing. And I couldn't think where they're landing. And I noticed that on the Omaha beach, there was a, just a single strip on the side of the water. And these C-45s were landing and unloading. And my general in his... C-45 was about to do the same thing. So I circled with him, or around him, watching all the excitement taking place underneath me. And uh, because my family said I'm the sort of person I am, that rules are for everybody else, but not for me, I just circled with them. And I thought I would better land there too. So I put the wheels and my flaps down and I landed my P-51 on the single track. And I got to, the, it was just over a thousand yards long. The water was literally feet away. And I then taxied back along the side of the strip, stopped my aircraft, and to watch what was going on. Purely because I was interested in me. I was not there to do anything. I just wanted what was going on. And there was a mass of things going on. Aircraft were unloading, piles of stuff being this loaded everywhere. And in the middle of it all was a chop standing on a mountain of, of luggage, waving his hands and blowing a whistle. So uh, I thought I'd get out. It sounds ridiculous to even talk about. Uh, I then got out of my aircraft and I walked towards him and I stood underneath him looking up. I thought, well, I ought to tell him who I am, why I'm here. It'd be rather decent of him you know, to, to report my presence. I said, uh, are you the chap in charge? <laughs> and he, no answer. I shouted up several times, are you the chap in charge? But no answer. So I turned away in order to walk back to my aircraft. And suddenly he said, no, no, he wasn't. Uh, so I said, well, who is? He said, well, uh, he's under that tarpaulin just next to us at the place you're standing. He's the duty pilot or someone, I don't know what he called himself. 
I said, what, he's underneath here? He said, yeah, I said, the sniper just got him. <laughs> so I said, where was he? He said, well, it's where you're standing. <laughs> so I just backed away. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm just wasting my time here. So I walked back to my aircraft, and which was the dicey thing to do because you have to uh, start up in the internals. And if the biomed battery had been flat, I'd been stuck there for a long time. So I climbed back in, started up my engine, went back to the beginning of the run, took off. Climbed away into the, into the North Sea, out of the channel, and flew back across the channel, landed at, at uh, headquarters. There was nobody around. And uh, I just thought, well, well, I just went to my base, over where the place I uh, had my bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't talk to anybody about it until about a week, 10 days later, Homer L. Sanders rang me up and said, hey, he, I hear you've been t talking to Al Hill, your roommate, that you landed at Omaha Beach. You didn't tell me. So I said, well, it was not an event. Nothing but happened. I landed there and took off again. Yeah, but you, whatever. I said, well, people were being, you're the first chap to land at Omaha Beach. I said, no, there must have been others, but they were shot down. They didn't land of their own accord. But, uh, and I never mentioned it to anybody. It's now 2017. You're among the last of the few. What, what's that like? I don't think about it at all. It's, I speak of it familiarly because I've written about it so much and I've talked about it so much so all the facts are engraved in my mind. But I don't think about it. I don't have nightmares. I'm not in any way affected by it. I don't have a, an injury or people who, with, who are injured during the battle or indeed later, uh, people see, they, you know, in, in the films, and particularly American films, all they do, somebody hits them on the head with a bottle and all they do is shake their head and get on with the job, sort of thing, in exactly the same way. When you're injured, believe me, it's with you for the rest of your life. And uh, you'll never forget it. And I was very fortunate. I was comparatively unscathed. I had a, few, a lot of scrapes. I had lost another aircraft. Uh, but uh, it left me unfazed, and uh, it meant a lot of a lot to a lot of people. Uh, uh, John Beasley, uh, he's in that photograph. Uh, a great friend of mine, delightful chap, slightly older than me, served in two four nine, and lived with his delightful wife down in Ware in Hertfordshire until the other day, and. He died, he's two years older than me. And his wife, just before she died, very shortly afterwards, said, you know, John suffered terribly, terribly, terribly from nightmares. He was badly, I knew he bailed out several times in 249 Squadron. And he'd been shot down with me on the 15th of, or 27th of September, I think it was, or 15th, I can't remember which. But he was shot in the foot, and that foot, bad foot, laughed at him all his life. And uh, apparently, all his life, he'd been hounded, or at least uh, 
Well, I suppose, yes, it was hounded by nightmares. But struggling to get out of bed at three o'clock in the morning, scouting and screaming. And a lot of people were so affected. To me, it didn't. I, nothing happened. I, I'm a survivor. A survivor, nothing more than that. It's, I'm not unaffected. Are you proud of what you and your 3,000 um, No, other? no, I'm not proud of what I did. In fact, I, I, have lo- I must tell you, and my sons probably don't know this, I lay awake at night and I think long, for long periods of the thing I didn't do, I ought to have done better. I should have done more. I was, according to the government and my declarations, I did reasonably well, but I should have done more. I should have done more. And uh, not only during the war, uh, also during my mother's life. And we had a very, we were married for 70 years, my wife and I. I had a lovely, beautiful, competent wife, but I wish I'd have done that. I'm, uh, uh, well, I'm looking for a word, what is, I tend, that is indeed my father, we, I, I remember after my father's, he was a Liverpool Scottish before the war, the first, first World War, but he was a watcher on life, and I've inherited his characteristics, I think. I, I'm sorry about that, I would have done more during the war and after. So when you said, this is my last question, that case just made me think of it. What advice, when you, when you see young pilots and you see young people now? Well, I, I have to give lectures every now and again to children. And what do you tell them? I tell you, set a good example. No matter what you do, set a good example. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for making it here. this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favor, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.